So Matthew 28, we're going to start in verse 11 here in just a second. My wife, Melissa, and I were married in the 1900s. It was 99, but it's technically the 1900s. We just got it in. But I want you to imagine this scenario with me. Imagine a scenario in which we get married, back from the honeymoon, we're back to regular life, our new normal, Um, but I refuse to talk about it with anyone. In fact, I'm petrified to mention to anyone that I'm married, not for any nefarious purposes, it's just something I'm not comfortable talking about, and so I leave all external symbols of marriage at home, and uh, I go to work, and I do the things I'm supposed to do, and I do all of that, and anytime anyone mentions marriage, I excuse myself from the conversation, go a different way. If I were to do that, you would say, Busby, what is your problem? Why are you not talking about it? This is a huge deal. Your whole life, you've been waiting on this moment, and now this thing has happened. Why will you not talk about your marriage to people? And my response is, well, I'm scared. I don't know what to say. I don't know how to say it. What if I talk about my marriage and someone gets mad at me? Or, or worse, what if they ask a question about marriage that I don't know the answer to? You would say, you are out of your mind, sir. And you might be right. That type of fear to talk about something so natural and so fantastic is truly an irrational fear. It, it makes no more sense to be scared to talk about marriage than to be scared to talk about what Jesus Christ has done for us in bringing us from death to life by faith in him. Talking about Jesus and telling the story of Jesus is just as natural and fantastic and incredible a story as any story we Christians have to tell. We get handcuffed so often by self-imposed fears and irrational worries. We hide our lights under a bushel. We, we don't want anyone to know and we don't want to talk. And what if someone asks us a question we don't know the answer to? All these fears loom large in our minds, and so we leave the work of sharing the gospel to other people. We think we're too small, or we don't know enough, or we're not good enough, whatever the excuse is. I'm telling you this, Christ in you is a difference maker. And the sharing of the gospel is not to be something that is a burden to any believer, but is just as natural as talking about your new marriage your kid, your new puppy, your great restaurant you found, whatever the thing is that comes naturally off of your lips. So in recent weeks, we've walked with Jesus to the cross, and we've witnessed his death and resurrection, and that story is good news to a world that is wrapped up in sin, and you are the storyteller of that good news. So my intent today is to encourage you to tell the story of Jesus If we study our passage right, you're going to walk out of here with great motivation for being a person with a verbal witness. So what I want to do with our passage this morning as we finish up Matthew is share with you three motivations for sharing the gospel. Three motivations for sharing the gospel from Matthew chapter 28, starting in verse 11. I want you to follow along with me as I read. Now remember the setting, Jesus has died on the cross, he's been buried in the tomb, morning of Sunday, the following Sunday, he rose from the dead, there were guards guarding his tomb, when the dead man came to life, those alive men became like dead men, they were left 
quivering in the dirt. Uh, and uh, then Jesus meets with these women in, who, who witnessed this event, and he tells them, go to my brothers, tell them to meet me in Galilee. And that's where the story picks up in verse 11. So while the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, you are to say, his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Very familiar words. I want you to listen with fresh ears this morning. This passage we call the Great Commission. When Jesus gives these instructions to his 11 disciples, And I want to show you in this passage three motivations for you being someone who tells the beautiful story of Jesus Christ. Three motivations for sharing the gospel start with this. First of all, the gospel thrives in a hostile world. Verses 11 through 15 show us this, that the gospel thrives in a hostile world. It's incredible that after the events at the tomb on that Sunday morning, there are two different groups of reporters One group is the women, these faithful followers of Jesus who came that morning to tend to his supposedly dead and decaying body. And so they come to the tomb that day to care for the body. They see the angel. They see Jesus. And now they're given this message to go back and report to their brothers, the disciples. The second group of reporters are these guards. And look, the guards essentially tell the very same story that these women tell. We're just standing there. All of a sudden, there's an earthquake. Stone rolls away. Jesus is gone. Here's an angel. Here's everything we saw and we witnessed. They they don't try to cover it up. They don't try to blame anyone. They just tell the simple story. And the response from the religious leaders is a remarkable portrait in hard-heartedness. They're opposed to even considering that there might be some truth to be found in this moment. And so rather, they dip into the temple bank account for nefarious purposes once again. You remember in our journey through Matthew's passion narrative, these religious leaders have hit the temple checking account on more than one occasion. They dipped into those funds previously to purchase Jesus' betrayal. They dip into those funds again to buy a lie. If necessary, they'll dip into those funds to purchase a bribe just in case the Roman governor Pilate hears what happens and and gets upset. So they're ready to use these temple funds, which are supposed to be used for the purpose of God's people, uh, for their own agendas, their own nefarious purposes. And, And what's more, they don't just buy a lie. Matthew makes it clear that they perpetuate 
a falsehood. They concoct a fake story. Here's a true story, the gospel story that's going to go, and at the same time, they concoct a different narrative. Some might call it fake news. They tell a wrong story, and they perpetuate that falsehood alongside of the true story. Matthew tells us in verse 15, he says, this story has been widely circulated among Jews to this very day. Now, what Matthew experienced in his day remains true in our day. The message about Jesus spreads in a world that is hostile to that message and that is hostile to Jesus. In February of 2016, Pew Research released some numbers regarding how religious the different states in our nation are. They had four tools for measurement. The tools were these questions, or you would identify yourself on a spectrum in these four areas. The four questions were, how important is religion to your life? Two, do you attend worship services weekly? Three, do you pray daily? Four, do you believe in God with absolute certainty? When the results were tallied up, the state in 50th place, meaning the state that is the least religious in America was New Hampshire. The 49th state on that list, well, there was no 49th state. There was a tie for last place between New Hampshire and Massachusetts. Maine and Vermont, next in line. In Massachusetts, 33% of people say religion is important in their lives. Only 23% say they attend worship services weekly. 37% say they pray daily. 40% say they believe in God with absolute certainty. We live in the bullseye of lostness. We live in a culture that is suspicious of the claims of Christianity, what we call good news they feel threatened by. We live in a culture that is supremely spiritual. Make no mistake about that. Our culture is very, very spiritual, yet wants little to do with Jesus. And here's the good news. This reality does not in any way hinder the spread of the gospel. In fact, when the gospel of Jesus Christ is lived and proclaimed in a culture like ours, it is amplified against all other alternatives. Living in Massachusetts is not bad news for the gospel of Jesus Christ. God, why couldn't you have put us in Alabama? There's a reason our Lord has a church on the South Shore. And it's because the South Shore is not okay without Jesus Christ. So when we look to the culture around us and the way things are, there's no reason for you and I to wring our hands and think, oh, we're on a sinking ship. What's happening here? We've got every reason to be bold and to be courageous and to continue telling the story because the gospel of Jesus Christ has always thrived, thrived in hostile environments. We may be in a cold environment. I would hesitate to call the culture we live in hostile to the gospel. Hostility looks a lot more severe. But when you and I find ourselves in a place like this, it's, it's by divine grace. It's a gift of God that he would put in this place. He would love this community and our surrounding community so much that he would put a church here filled with people like you who love the Lord 
and love our communities and love our neighbors and love the word and are committed to live it out in public with them. The gospel of Jesus Christ thrives in a hostile world. Second motivation for you to be a storyteller, to tell the gospel of Jesus Christ, is because the gospel spreads through imperfect servants. The gospel spreads through imperfect servants, verses 16 through the first part of 18. Highlights this for us. So, the false narrative is concocted, and it begins to spread. We get to verse 16, and the disciples are obeying Jesus' instructions. Uh, We're told that the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. Quick little geography lesson for you, just so we get our mind around uh, these details. The disciples began in Jerusalem. They're in the city of Jerusalem when all this stuff takes place, Jesus' crucifixion, His resurrection. Jerusalem is a city. Galilee is a region. Think of it like a county. Jesus tells the disciples, I'll meet you on this one particular mountain in Galilee. Matthew doesn't identify the mountain for us, but the disciples knew exactly where to go. And so they make the trip from the city of Jerusalem to the mountain in Galilee, which was at least an 80-mile trek. So they make the long journey to that location. The hills around the Sea of Galilee had long been one of Jesus' favorite teaching locations. And those 11 disciples saw so many miracles. They saw people fed. They saw blind people receive sight. They heard so many incredible teachings about the kingdom of God from Jesus in those hills. They go back for this one more incredible and powerful lesson from Jesus. And look at verse 17. Look how it describes the scene. It says, when they saw Jesus, they arrived at the mountain. When they saw Jesus, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Isn't that wild? These are the 11, the guys, and they see Jesus and still they doubt. What is the nature of their doubt? It's tough to say. Matthew doesn't give us a, a full explanation of it. Here's my guess, so you can feel free to take this and just chunk it out the window if you want. My guess is their doubt is a type of awe. They cannot believe what they're seeing. Here's Jesus. We've come all this way to this mountain in Galilee, and there he is. The the reports are true. This, This boggles their minds. So I think it's important to note here that there are there's room for doubters in the family of faith. It's okay to have doubts. When we doubt, we find ourselves in great company, in fact. The words of Jesus are not above testing and searching. And you will find here in this episode, Jesus does not chastise the doubters. In the past, he said things to people like Peter. He'll say, oh, you have little faith. He doesn't do that here. He doesn't chastise them. Rather, He comforts them. How does Jesus help and comfort the doubters? Look at the beginning of verse 18. Then Jesus came to them and said. Jesus came to them. They made the long trek from Jerusalem up to this hillside in Galilee. And when Jesus sees them, he does not sit there with his arms crossed, waiting on them to come slugging their way up to him. About time you got here. Peter, you are so slow. You always have been. 
bunch of cowards, crybabies. He sees them and he goes to them. It reminds me of the parable Jesus told of the dad and his prodigal son. Remember how that story goes? The son goes off, loses his mind in sin, and when he decides to come back home, his dad is in front of the house looking for him, and he sees his son, and what does the dad do? Well, he takes off and he runs to the son, hugs him and kisses him and starts the party. I see that kind of father in Jesus here. He sees his disciples coming, and he knows some of them doubt. He knows this, and Jesus comes to them. That's not the only thing he does. You know how else he comforts the doubters? He comforts them with his word. Verse 18 says, Jesus came to them and said. How does he address their unbelief? What is it that quiets their doubts? It's the word of the Lord. Jesus speaks and they know doubt is erased. More certain than a sign, more amazing than a miracle, more convincing than any wonder is the word of our Lord. So if you find yourself numbered among the doubters, don't think for a second that you are an outcast. You are not. But my encouragement to you is this. The best way for you to address your doubt is to get yourself in front of the words of Jesus you will settle very little regarding your doubts by only remaining in your thoughts, in your questions. But if you'll put yourself in front of the words of Christ, just as his doubting disciples did, I'm confident you will find the answers you are searching for. No one walked off of that mountain an agnostic that day. Everyone knew. Every doubt erased at the presence in the word of their resurrected Lord. And isn't it amazing that Jesus gives his most important work to this ragtag bunch of 11 disciples? If you had to put together a team of 11 people to carry this most important message to the globe, who are you looking for? Not one of these guys, I guarantee you that. We're looking for SEAL Team 6 type Christians, ninja Christians. What you, we want superheroes, people with capes. That's the type of Christians we're looking for. And these 11 are far from that. Some of them are doubters, as we've seen. And, and there are a bunch of other things too. They're deniers, they're fleers, they're cowards, they're arrogant. This just goes to tell me that Jesus uses unlikely and imperfect servants to proclaim the beautiful message of salvation. What you and I like to do when it comes to considering telling people about Jesus, our our, our first excuse, our first reason not to is because of our own shortcomings. I, I, I can't do this. I'm not good with words. What if someone asks me a question I don't know the answer to? I fear human interaction. There's any number of excuses we might use, but God has been met with a ton of excuses throughout the ages. He's always called on imperfect people to do His perfect work. He chose Moses, and Moses said, but I have a speech impediment. And he chose Joshua, and Joshua said, but I'm not Moses. He chose Gideon, and Gideon said, but I'm the weakest in all my clan. And he chose Esther, and Esther said, I'm too scared. 
And he chose Isaiah. And Isaiah said, I'm too sinful. And he chose Jeremiah. And Jeremiah said, I'm too young. We're quick to point out our shortcomings as reasons to be exempt from this glorious task. God, you've made a mistake. Not me. However, in our haste, we miss out on God's normal order of things. You are commissioned long before you are perfected. You are commissioned long before you are perfected. God isn't waiting on you to reach some level of excellence or awesomeness or whatever the thing is. He knows you and all of your shortcomings. He loves you and he has given you broken one, the limping one, the hurting one. He has given you this glorious story to tell. God did not make a mistake when he called you. He didn't get it wrong. He knows exactly what he's doing. He knows exactly who his servants are. He has chosen you for this beautiful task. So yeah, you're imperfect and I'm imperfect. There's not a question about that. But in all of our excuse-making, in all of the reasons we think God shouldn't choose us or use us, you only validate His choice. God will use those servants through whom He will receive glory. The one who comes up and says, I'm the one for the job. I'm going to do this. Take care of it my way. That's the one who is quickly disqualified. The one who will come humbly and say, I don't know how you're going to do this through me. I've got doubts, I've got fears, I've got a history, I've got, I've got a sketchy future. You're the servant he's called. The gospel thrives in hostile environments, and the gospel spreads through imperfect servants. Final motivation for you to be a storyteller is the gospel spreads through empowered servants. Not just imperfect, but empowered servants. Verses 18 through 20 highlight this for us. Verses 18, 19, and 20, some of the most precious verses in all of Scripture for the church. I want us to go phrase by phrase through it rather quickly. Look first in verse 18. Jesus came to the disciples and he said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. The issue of authority is a major theme throughout Matthew's gospel. It's a big deal. Does Jesus have the right to say what he says and and to do what he does? Does he possess the authority to do these things? The answer throughout is yes, the authority is his. And he makes that clear here at the end of this work. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He has not some authority, not access to authority. It all belongs to him. He is the omni-authoritative one. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to Jesus. Now here's an important question for us at this point. To whom does Jesus transfer that authority? When he gives these instructions to the 11 on that hillside that day, is he speaking just to those 11 or is he speaking to the church in general? My understanding of this passage is that Jesus gives the authority for disciple-making specifically to those 11. Later, you would add Paul to the mix, and we get a group known as the apostles. These apostles are the men who had uh, one-on-one contact with Jesus. And those apostles operate with the authority of Jesus, and then they 
put the church under that apostolic authority. So does the church have the commission? Yes. Does the church have the authority? Well, the authority of the apostles is like an umbrella that we operate under. And when we as a church deviate from the apostolic authority, listen, we leave the faith entirely. The word that the Lord gave to the apostles, this word recorded here that we've committed our lives to, this is the, the, the full teaching of Jesus, the authority of the apostles on display. You and I, as we bring ourselves in line with this word, sit under the apostolic authority and all authority in heaven and on earth given to Jesus, transferred to his apostles. For what purpose? What's he going to do with all of this authority? Verse 19, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. He transfers all of his authority to his disciples for this purpose so they can make disciples. For you grammar nerds in attendance this morning, my brothers and sisters, uh, quiz time for you. What is the command in this phrase? Beginning of verse 19, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. What's the command there in verse 19? Uh, You've got a few different options. You might say, well, it's go. Therefore, go. That sounds like a command. Or you might say, aha, trick question. There's two commands. Therefore, go, that's one command. Make disciples is the second command. Well, our English translation doesn't help us so much with this. There's one command only in this verse, and that command is make disciples. It's not the going. The going just describes what we're doing while we're fulfilling the command, while we're making disciples. So as you're going, make disciples of whom? Israel, right? No, all nations. Make disciples of all nations. So Jesus makes it clear that the work he's giving us is an ongoing work as you're going. It's a very clear work. What we're supposed to do, we're to make disciples. And the target audience is abundantly clear, all nations. Do you have a heart beating, lungs pumping? You are a target of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ crosses every geographic boundary and every tribal boundary, every language, every ethnicity, every shade of melanin. Heaven is going to be filled with so many non-English speakers, and it will be beautiful because the gospel is going to all nations. The mission of the church is abundantly clear in this line. Why does this church exist? What is the purpose for South Shore Baptist Church? To have a room and to have a gathering time and to have ministry to our children and our teenagers. Well, what's the purpose of having growth groups that gather on a regular basis to study God's Word together? What's the purpose of having Sunday school classes that meet after this? What's the purpose in all of this? The purpose is clear from verse 19. We are here to make disciples. So many Christians and so many churches suffer from missional amnesia. But make no mistake, South Shore Baptist Church does not exist to be preservationists of the past. We do not exist for the sake of our own church. We exist for this glorious task to make disciples. That's the metric that matters. That's what has to be measured has to be prayed for, resources put towards, is so that men and women and boys and girls would hear the gospel and have the opportunity to say yes to Jesus by faith and then be grown into maturity as they walk with him 
in their discipleship. How then are we to make disciples? That's what Jesus gives us next. Verse 19, he says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. So we make disciples utilizing two means. First is baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. What does baptizing a person have to do with their discipleship? Well, baptism, as we see it taught and portrayed throughout Scripture, is the outward evidence of this inner transformation. It is the public sign that follows the private yes to Jesus. Baptism is a sure sign of a true conversion, ought to be a sure sign of a true conversion. Baptism is vitally important in disciple-making, and along with that, Jesus says the second tool is teaching. Verse 20, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. It's a big job. What if we get scared along the way? What if something bad happens? What if What if we get discouraged in the work that Jesus has given us to do? Well, his last word to us is a word of encouragement. At the end of verse 20, look at that last line. Surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. With Christ at your side, what do you have to fear? (laughs) What conversation is too scary to have? What, What person is too scary to approach? You've got Christ at your side to guide you and to help you. He doesn't send us on this effort on our own. He has a vested interest in seeing his church succeed in the mission that he's given to us. So Jesus tells us the work to do. He tells us who our target audience is. He tells us how we are to accomplish this work. He gives us the authority to perform the work. And then he gives us the comfort of his continuing presence. So when you and I come limping to Jesus and say, I'm not sure I'm the one you should use. Jesus says, look at all these ways I'm empowering you to share the good news. You may be an imperfect servant, but you are an empowered servant by God's abundant grace. Now, there's a popular quote that's been thrown around for a long time. It's attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. And the quote goes like this. It says, preach the gospel at all times When necessary, use words. Maybe you've heard that before. I'll tell you two things about that quote. First of all, there's no evidence that St. Francis of Assisi ever said such a line. Second of all, it's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. The gospel is not the gospel until it is spoken. Now, should you live in such a way as to model Christ and his sacrificial life? Absolutely And can people see Jesus in us through our example? I'm confident they can, but they cannot be saved unless they hear the spoken word of God because faith comes by hearing. Faith does not come through your good example. It comes by hearing the word of the Lord, not receiving a toaster, by hearing the word of the Lord, not by mowing a lawn. It's by hearing the word of the Lord. So give toasters, mow lawns, be kind, hold doors, do all those things that people who follow Christ should do But brother and sister, those things are no substitute for the power of the spoken word of Jesus Christ. While everyone is responsible to speak the gospel, we may not all feel emboldened to do so. We, in fact, may have very natural fears. We may not feel like we're hardwired for that task. 
I want to make sure you understand the full scope, all the possibilities here for accomplishing the task Christ has given us. You can be a gospel sharer in your home. It's the most effective place for the Great Commission to be fulfilled is from parent to child. You've got to fulfill the Great Commission with our kids. We can fulfill the Great Commission with our neighbors, people we work with, people we little league with, people we vacation with. All of, every place we go, that's a place for the telling of the story. But if you're not naturally hardwired for that type of interaction, here's another option for you. Do not underestimate the power of the simple and persistent invitation to church. It's easy. It's natural. There's an in, built-in opportunity for follow-up. The friend you ask, and come, they come with you. You've got an opportunity for conversation after the fact. Let's be rabid about inviting people to church. Not for the sake of the bottom line. I don't care about a bottom line. What I care about is people whom Christ loves getting in front of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let's be serious about it and include that as a part of our fulfillment of the Great Commission. When you invite them and they come, they will hear the gospel. As long as they're sitting in these pews on a Sunday morning at this hour, they will hear the gospel. And there will be a natural opportunity for you to continue in that conversation with them as you walk patiently with them towards their faith in Jesus Christ. There's so much goodness here. We, I hate that we give only one Sunday to this, but it's it's such good encouragement to you and I to tell the story of the gospel. And here's your motivation this morning. One motivation is that the gospel has always thrived in hostile environments. The gospel has always been shared through imperfect servants, and the gospel is then shared through empowered servants as well. Let me share a story with you I heard an old preacher share many years ago. Now, it came to pass that a group existed who called themselves fishermen, and lo, there were many fish in the waters all around. In fact, the whole area was surrounded by streams and lakes filled with fish, and the fish were hungry. Week after week, month after month, and year after year, these who called themselves fishermen met in meetings and talked about their call to fish, the abundance of fish, and how they might go about fishing. Year after year, they carefully defined what fishing means, defended fishing as an occupation, and declared that fishing is always to be a primary task of fishermen. Continually, they searched for new and better methods of fishing and for new and better definitions of fishing. They created witty slogans and displayed them on big, beautiful banners. These fishermen built large, beautiful buildings called fishing headquarters. The plea was that everyone should be a fisherman and every fisherman should fish. One thing they didn't do, however, they did not fish. In addition to meeting regularly, they organized a board to send out fishermen to other places where there were many fish. And the board hired staffs and appointed committees and held many meetings to define fishing, to defend fishing, and to decide what new streams should be thought about. But the staff and the committee members did not fish. Large, elaborate, and expensive training centers were built uh, whose original and primary purpose was to teach 
fishermen how to fish. Many people were taught to fish. Those who taught had doctorates in fishology, but the teachers did not fish. They only taught fishing. Year after year, after tedious training, many were graduated and were given fishing licenses. They were sent to do full-time fishing, some to distant waters which were filled with fish. Many who felt the call to be fishermen responded. They were commissioned and sent to fish. But like the fishermen back home, they never fished. They engaged in all kinds of other occupations. Some felt their job was to relate to the fish in a good way so the fish would know the difference between good and bad fishermen. Others felt that simply letting the fish know they were nice, land-loving neighbors and how loving and kind they were was enough. But they never fished. Imagine how hurt some were when one day a person suggested that those who don't fish were not really fishermen, no matter how much they claimed to be. Yet it did sound correct. Is a person a fisherman if year after year he never fishes? Is one really following if he isn't fishing? What about you? Are you following? Brothers and sisters, it's time for us to tell the story. Would you pray with me, please? Father God, those of us who are here today that know you as our Savior can say without a doubt we know you because someone told us the story. That story may have just been written in your word. That's the story that's been told. Or it may have come through a preacher or a family member or a friend. But Lord, we who know you and follow you by faith, it's because someone told us the story. And Lord, you have equipped and empowered and called us to this glorious task. It's not a burden. It's not a defeat. It is the story that changes lives. God, the Holy Spirit, you, you reside in us for this purpose. You have gifted us to tell the story so that people would be drawn to faith in you. God, I pray that you would give courage to my brothers and sisters today to trust the power of the gospel, to be bold in their witness, to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves, to not use the gospel like a hammer, but Lord, to be gracious and loving and kind and clear when given the opportunity. Embolden us to take advantage of conversations. Embolden us to make the invite to church. Let us pay attention to the metric that matters, that being making disciples. Lord, I pray this morning for any friends in here that don't know you as their Savior, that as they sat and heard what the church is about, why we exist, Lord, that they would be drawn to the one who died on the cross, who rose from the dead, and who promises eternal life to all those that come to him in faith. Father, move us forward this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.